For more than 150 years, baseball has connected generations together. It's a symbol of national pride, of quality time with a child or friend, or just a general love for sports. In the trenches of Europe, American soldiers played pickup games to escape the horrors around them, even if it was just for a moment. In the film Field of Dreams, Ray Kinsella finally gets a chance to connect with his dad in a way he'd always yearned for, by playing a game of catch. Today, parents take children to empty baseball fields and backyards with a bucket of balls just for a chance to practice and connect. Baseball serves as links between people. That's never changed. But the physical baseball, that has changed. In size, weight, and material. So how is a baseball from 1899 different from a baseball in 2019? We'll find out today on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our latest episode. My name is Jeff Lambert, and I am your host. Before we get into today's show, I just want to stop and thank those who are continuing to support the show financially. You know, I've been asking in the past episodes for some help being able to purchase a mobile microphone that I can plug right into my iPhone and be able to do some episode recording when I'm on the road. And uh, we were getting close to that number, and I have to give a special thank you to Joel R. He uh, mailed a check for $100 to the show specifically for that purpose. So that puts me over the top. I'm able to get that microphone now, and that's going to increase my ability to be able to record wherever I am. So Joel and everybody else that gave money towards that, thank you so much. I I really can't express my, my gratitude properly in audio format, but it really means a lot. And for everybody else, if you'd like to help me out this month in a way that I think would really help the show continue to grow, if you can just take a moment at the end of the episode to go on iTunes and leave a review, That helps me so much just getting in front of new people who are interested in baseball and baseball history. It helps the show in terms of search results and being able to just get in front of a new audience. So if you can take a minute and go on and you can leave a star rating or you can do stars and a written review, whatever you have time to do, I appreciate it. And if you're not listening through your uh, podcast app or through iTunes on your iOS device, you can do it in any podcast app that you are currently using to be able to leave a review. Um, it doesn't matter to me how you do it. Just being able to get a review out to get the word out means means a lot. So uh, the other big milestone for this episode, this is going to be the it's going to be the first time that I'm going to do a video companion to this episode. So there were so many neat graphics that I found that had to do with how baseballs have evolved from early on that I wanted to create a visual way for people to be able to see that. So I'm going to be taking the audio from this podcast. And I'm going to be overlaying it with some photographs, and I'm going to be posting that video on YouTube. So if you're interested in seeing that, it'll go up later this afternoon. And uh, you can find me at the username Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. So check it out and let me know what you think. That is all for the intro. Let's get to our topic. The materials used to make a baseball in the early 1800s 
really depended on where you lived and what materials were available. I found multiple sources that stated that it was simply the pitcher's responsibility to make their own baseballs and bring them to the games during this period. The only group to publish any more specific data on baseballs during this time is the Smithsonian Institution. They stated that, quote, balls were made by cobblers from the rubber remnants of old shoes with rubber cores wrapped in yarn and a leather cover, if you're lucky. In some regions, sturgeon eyes were used instead of melted shoe rubber, end quote. The most common ball found from this time period is referred to as the lemon peel, and its name really comes from the look. Just imagine one piece of leather wrapped around a core of rubber and yarn and stitched together with four lines across one opening. And these balls were smaller. They were about six inches in circumference. And compared to today's size, which is nine inches, that would be a significant difference. So just imagine a, a baseball that has a stitching almost to make it look like a lemon, and then being six inches compared to nine inches today. In addition to that, the balls were lighter in weight, too, because there was the lack of a really large rubber core at the center. They were darker in color, based on the leather that would be used, and it would, it would certainly uh, stain more quickly, and the balls were generally softer as well, mainly because of the condition of the leather that was being used then. Because these compact baseballs had rubber, or in that case, sturgeon eyes, for cores, they bounced around a lot more than a modern baseball would, and that led to really high-scoring games. A batter could hit the ball further, and the ball would bounce much higher on impact using this type of baseball. It wasn't uncommon to have games look more like basketball scores than baseball scores during this time period. The first time we see an attempt to actually regulate what baseball should be used was actually in the 1850s. It was when the professional baseball clubs in New York all got together and they voted on a standardized size and weight for all their game balls. Now, those game balls were uh, required to be 5.5 to 6 ounces, and they could have a circumference between 8 and 11 inches. That's, a, that's closer to what we have today but it certainly could be a lot bigger than what a baseball today would look like as well. Now, these, these dimensions that were used by the New York professional clubs, this is, these made the balls used in this part of the country considerably larger and heavier than what was being used in the early 1800s, and that led to a drop in overall scoring. But it was the first recorded step to setting regulations on baseballs. Now, even with these standardized rules, Teams would still get crafty with the rules to try and gain an advantage because there was some room for interpretation there. So home teams were in charge of making and bringing their own balls to the game. And again, as long as they met those two specifications, the umpire would check them and they would be okay. But they could adjust the ball based on their game strategy. So, for example, a home team could supply baseballs made with more rubber in the core and a tighter winding of the yarn to make the ball travel further and bounce higher. But 
They could also supply baseballs with less rubber and looser yarn uh, wound together to make a, a dead ball, as they would call it. And that would have the opposite effect. And ball selection was a key strategy between the 1850s and the 1900s. And it was a critical benefit of home field advantage. See, if you were a visiting team coming in and you had big power hitters, you'd often find out very quickly that the ball that you were hitting was one of those dead balls, which would immediately take away your power advantage over the home team. So this first attempt to standardize how a baseball was constructed in terms of uh, moving on from the New York uh, attempt was in 1876, and this was when the National League was formed. So the story goes that the National League began looking around because they wanted to find one supplier who could provide those regulation baseballs that would be used for all the teams in the league. The league, excuse me. So that would take away the the rule of having the home team bring their own baseballs, thus being able to doctor what the insides contain. So the story goes that there was a pitcher on the Red Sox by the name of A.G. Spaulding. Now, Spaulding retired in 1875, so this was a year before that 1876 season where the National League decided to standardize their baseballs. Now, Spaulding was well-known. He compiled a career record of 241 wins and 60 losses, and that was all done in a four-year career. He pitched every game, and every game he pitched, he used the baseballs that he made himself. Now, after his retirement and hearing about the upcoming uh, plan from the National League, he went to the executives, and he convinced them to adopt his baseball that he had made throughout his career as the regulation model for the entire league. He also got them to agree to name him to be the official supplier of those baseballs. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the birth of the Spalding Empire. They were the official baseball supplier of the MLB all the way until 1976. And the only reason that ended was because Spalding tried to hike up their prices and the MLB called their bluff and ended up switching suppliers. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. So what did the Spalding regulation baseball look like? Let me read you a quote. The ball shall be a spear formed of yarn wound around a small core of cork, rubber, or similar material and covered with two strips of white horsehide or cowhide tightly stitched together. It shall weigh not less than five nor more than 5.25 ounces and measure not less than nine nor more than 9.25 inches in circumference. Now that's a lot. I don't think you tuned in today to get a math lesson, but let's just try and look at that compared to a modern baseball. So a baseball used today would be 9 to 9.5 inches in circumference. These early Spalding balls were just a little bit smaller. They had that maximum of 9.25 inches in circumference, so not a huge difference. Uh, in the same vein, today's baseball... The regulation is that the ball must weigh between 5 and 5.25 ounces. And this early ball was about the same. The difference really comes into the regulation of the materials inside the ball, trying to make sure that there were some uh, guidelines there. But overall, these Spalding baseballs, they immediately had a huge impact on the offense in the National League. And it led to a huge drop in scoring because of the way that they were constructed. 
See, they called for two layers of hide over the yarn and, of course, the core. But keep in mind, the yarn and the leather use on the outside, it wasn't conditioned or waterproofed at all. So the more that ball got wet, the heavier it became. Just imagine rolling a ball around in a wet outfield all game, and imagine the difference in the weight of that from the first inning to the seventh inning. These balls would also break easily because the rubber core was flimsy and the stitching would pop as the ball got heavier as the game went on. So this is why the turn of the century, baseball was known as the dead ball era because of the types of balls being used and it really affected the offensive output. Now, how bad was the offense during the dead ball era? Well, there was an average of 3.94 runs per game from 1901 to 1910. You heard that correctly. Just under four runs a game <laughs> for 1901 to 1910, that period. During that span, there was also an average of 0.13 home runs per game. So less than a homer a game, significantly less than a homer per game. That was the offensive output that you could expect if you went to see a National League game. But there were two changes that led to the end of the dead ball era and another change in how baseballs were made. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, let's take a quick break now for the seventh inning stretch. We'll be right back. Don't you leave now. If you're enjoying the episode, please take a moment to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. Every day we have photos, quotes, trivia, and other interesting stories from baseball's rich past. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through a service called Anchor. They have a secure payment option through Stripe, a trusted name in online payments. So you can send me a donation safely and easily simply by going to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. Again, that's anchor.fm forward slash rounders. I'm currently raising funds to purchase a one-year subscription to Adobe so I can up my production game and include videos and branded graphics for my social media channel. You can help me reach this goal with a monthly donation or a one-time donation. For my current donors... Thank you so much for your patronage. It means the world to me. Again, just go to anchor.fm forward slash rounders to donate. I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes for you. That's all for now, everybody. Let's get back to the show. And welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you for staying with me. So let's recap the first part of our show. Baseballs in the late 1700s and early 1800s would vary based on region and materials. They would be made by pitchers and brought to the games. That's how they were constructed. Now, the way that they were built usually resembled a lemon shape. In the 1850s, New York clubs voted for the first standardized ball, but teams had room to use baseballs that benefited them or hurt their opponent. In 1876, the National League made a regulation deal with a new company called Spalding to produce regulation baseballs for all of their clubs. 
These balls led to a low-scoring time in baseball history called the dead ball era. And that's where we pick up our story. So one of the big evolutions in baseball technology was the stitching. Remember the lemon peel look? There was that one-line stitch that led to balls being able to break really easily. And it was the invention of something called the figure eight stitch, the one that we know and love today, that really moved baseball technology forward. So who was responsible for this invention? Some say it was a shoemaker's son named Ellis Drake, who supposedly put the design together with some of his father's scrap leather in an effort to create a more resilient cover to the ball. Some say it was a Civil War officer named Colonel William A. Cutler, who may have invented that familiar stitching that we know in 1858 and sold it to one of the first baseball manufacturers, William Harwood. Now, whoever did develop that figure-eight stitch, it really comes down to the patent. And the first patented figure-eight stitch was made by Harwood & Sons, who built the first factory dedicated to baseball production, and they did it in Natick, Massachusetts. So that's where this figure-eight stitch came in, and that became popular during the early 1900s and obviously all the way through today as the best way to be able to keep that cover on and provide that resilience for the baseball. Now, in 1910, the American League adopted a new regulation for their baseballs, and it was one that made another really fundamental change in baseball construction. See, they got rid of the rubber core that was used for the cork. Now, there was an article from Popular Mechanics that I found all the way back from 1910, and I had no idea that Popular Mechanics had been in publication for that long, but this is uh, they outlined what the change did for baseballs during this time. And this is what they said. Quote, The cork makes possible a more rigid structure and more uniform resiliency. It is said to outlast the rubber center balls many times over because it will not soften or break in spots under the most severe usage, end quote. So the biggest change that the cork made was that it really made that ball livelier again. It could be hit further and it would bounce more. And as soon as the American League adopted this new core in their baseballs, batting averages and runs scored surged almost immediately right after its adoption. Now, the beneficiary of this ball change in terms of using their skill to the maximum was actually Babe Ruth. See, his home running ability really signaled the end of the dead ball era. Now, offense is beginning to surge because of this new baseball design, but pitchers who had really enjoyed, a, I guess, a golden age during this time in terms of being able to really dominate the sport, they didn't take this change lying down. Uh... At this time, it became really popular to start, quote, doctoring the ball, as we've heard before. I want to jump into what some of those early doctoring techniques were. So there was a pitcher named Russ Ford, and he popularized a method of doctoring the ball known as scuffing the baseball. Now, basically what this was is the pitcher would mark up one side of the ball with whatever they smuggled onto the mound. It could be Uh, a belt buckle that was sharpened, it could be a piece of sandpaper, it could be really anything that would allow you to just just rub that leather and create some scuffing on it. Now what that would do, the pitcher would have to throw the ball a certain way, 
But by throwing the ball a certain way, the scuffing would cause the ball to make sudden shifts in direction, and it would make it generally harder to hit for the batter. Now, there was also the spitball, where a pitcher would use, during this time more often than not, saliva, but you could also use in later years uh, petroleum jelly or some other foreign substance, and it would cause the ball to move in ways a normal ball wouldn't. Now, rules, of course, followed that banned doctoring balls, but in reality, I mean, this really started in a response to the surge in offense from the baseball changing its core. Now, we can't go any further with talking about a good conspiracy theory. So, uh, p- pitchers, you know, continued to struggle uh, after 1910 in the American League because of this new core that was put in the baseballs. And uh, this all kind of came to a head in 1920 because the league saw an even further surge in runs and home runs in particular than compared to the previous year. Now, supposedly, the Spalding Company, remember the official supplier of the baseballs, uh, they, began, they began using a new wool from Australia in their baseballs. And it was said this wool was better because it could be wound more tightly around the cork, just because the wool was stronger in general. And this led to a ball that would be hit further and that would bounce even more. And the period from 1920 to 1925 saw runs increase by almost two per game. And there were several baseball purists during this time that were getting really upset about the adoption of this abomination by switching over the yarns. And they started calling this ball a rabbit ball. See, the worst part was that the league did it to hurt the pitchers, right? Shame on them. Or, that's what they said. In 1925, Major League Baseball commissioned a study to determine if this rabbit ball was having a really negative effect on the sport. And the committee concluded that, basically, pitchers just needed to stop crying about it. You know, offense was good for the league, and this is the way that they wanted to go. Now, to push that offensive focus even more, professional baseball made another pretty big innovation in 1925 when a guy named Milton B. Peach patented the Cushion Cork Center. Now, this is, again, an evolution in how the baseball is created. So with this new cushion cork, basically what it did was it took the existing cork cork that they had evolved to, and they encased that cork in vulcanized rubber, and then they surrounded that by another layer of red rubber. Now, this immediately had an even more profound effect on making the ball go further when hit. So, in 1934, the American League, uh, which favored, really, you know, balls that, that traveled further and bounced around more, they, they tended to favor those, and the National League tended to favor the thicker, uh, loosely threaded balls that favored pitchers. They agreed on one ball to use, and the ball that they agreed on using between both leagues was that ball with the cushion cork center. They also adopted a model that used the figure eight stitch as well. Now, ever since 1934, the baseball has gone through very minimal changes. It's essentially the same thing that we had since that time. Now, there was one major temporary change to the baseball that occurred after 1934, and that actually happened during World War II. So that story goes basically that 
you know, rubber is a very essential piece to the baseball. It encases the cork twice. So what happened was during World War II and leading up to it, Japan invaded Malaysia and the Dutch East Indies. And that was the main supplier for rubber to the United States. So that immediately cut off that main source to the United States. So any remaining supplies of rubber that were brought into the U.S. were automatically reallocated to the war effort. And just to give you an example of how important rubber was to the war effort, it took a half ton of rubber to build a long-range bomber, and it took over one ton of rubber to build a Sherman tank. So you can see why the U.S. really valued what they had left for rubber in terms of supply. They put a, a straight ban on the use of rubber on all items not essential to the war effort. And, of course, that included baseballs. They weren't exempt. So the MLB responded by doing some research and coming up with a new baseball that could be used during wartime. They settled on a rubber substitute known as balata. Now, balata, it looks like rubber, but it comes from tropical trees, and it's usually traditionally used uh, in the manufacturing of industrial gaskets, and it's also used to insulate telephone lines. But the main difference between balata and regular rubber is that rubber has, you know, a certain elasticity to it, and balata does not. And that caused a huge issue with hitting this new baseball, and that became obvious almost immediately. They adopted the use of this balata ball for the 1943 season, and by the end of the first month, the league was hitting just 223 with a 270 slugging percentage. That is that is super low. And just to drive the point home even more, after the first month of baseball in that 1943 season, a player named Danny Litweiler was the home run leader in the league with a grand total of two knocks. Two. So this was a problem. And the MLB responded by going back and adjusting the ball and trying to use less balata and more springier substitutes to try and get the offensive numbers back where they were before the war started. And they were able to do that. Now, the Balata ball lasted less than half a season, but it really shows how supply and demand can affect something even as small as a baseball. Now, since the end of World War II, there really haven't been any other changes to a regulation, ba- a regulation baseball that we know today. In 1974... Baseball officially adopted cowhide over horsehide due to a hide shortage. And like I mentioned before, in 1976, the baseball, uh, the MLB dropped Spalding as their official baseball supplier because of a cost increase negotiation. And once they dropped Spalding, they went with another company called Rawlings, and Rawlings is still the supplier to this day. But just like what we saw beginning in 1910 and moving forward, Baseball really started to place more of an emphasis on offense, and that has dictated how they've constructed baseball since that time. Now, even today, we know offense is all important, and there have been conspiracy theories about how since the 1990s, the MLB has been finding new ways to alter baseballs to favor hitters. Those conspiracy theories have gotten to the point that, believe it or not, in 2017, just recently, the MLB commissioned a 10-person team of researchers 
to study the baseballs that have been used since that time and see if there was any relationship between those and the surge in offense that the MLB has enjoyed. Now, the report did conclude a couple things, and this is the main thing. Quote, The committee concludes that no change to the materials or manufacturing processes, whether intentional or unintentional, has played a significant role in the home run surge, end quote. Now, that, that's a pretty clear-cut definitive answer by this research panel. And I guess to go even further, to their credit, to calm those concerns about baseball juicing, Commissioner Rob Manfred, he announced that beginning in 2018, that they were going to put even more measures in place for which the MLB is going to continue to investigate baseballs and to make sure that all baseballs used in all games are not doctored or juiced in any way. One way that they're going to do that is they're requiring all 30 ballparks to use humidors to stabilize ball conditions to make sure that there aren't any atmospheric changes before they're used. Now, before that, there were only two ballparks that were using those humidors, and that was Arizona and Colorado. But that's going to become a normal thing moving forward. So that's the journey of the baseball, ladies and gentlemen, from a homemade project that the pitcher brought to the game to a really tightly regulated spear that we know today. But no matter the size, shape, or weight of the baseball, it will always be a special symbol in the hearts of fans no matter where they are across the globe. And that's all for this episode, everybody. I, I hope you get the chance to play catch this weekend with someone close in your life. Thanks for listening. And remember, there are only two seasons. Winter and baseball. <laughs>